0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, Hello everybody! Well, as you are probably quickly noticing, likely from my distinguished sounding American accent, I'm not Sam. My name is Alan Ayers and I'm normally the host of the Political History of the United States podcast, a podcast that looks at the evolution and development of politics within the United States, beginning in 1607 Jamestown and moving all the way through modern times. This week, however, Sam has kindly asked me to come and talk to you guys about the Pilgrims and the Plymouth Colony, so without further delay, let's do just that. To begin today, I want to look at the conditions on the ground when the Pilgrims arrived in Plymouth. Sam has done an excellent job of getting you guys through the first few months, so I'm going to try to do my best not to be terribly repetitive. The Pilgrims were fundamentally different than the colonists that you would have seen elsewhere in North America. Unlike the colonists in Jamestown, for instance, the Pilgrims were not heading to North America just to try to strike it rich. They were attempting to avoid persecution back in England. Beyond that, though, the Pilgrims were extremely anxious to attempt to maintain their community and their lifestyle. After leaving their homes in England near Scrooby, they would relocate to Leiden where they would spend the next decade. However, despite happiness and prosperity in Leiden, the Pilgrims became extremely concerned about the younger generation intermarrying with the Dutch girls, hence breaking up the closely knit community that they had formed. What the pilgrims really wanted was some place that they could freely worship without risking influence from outside of their community. This explains why when the opportunity presented itself, traveling to North America made so much sense for them. There was nobody around to tell them how to practice their religion, plus no risk of outside influences breaking up their small community. At least that was the theory. However, in reality, the situation would prove to be a whole lot different. As Samuel had mentioned, the Lideners were not the only group heading to Plymouth on the Mayflower. You had a second group that didn't really care about the religious freedom that the Puritans wanted, but rather they were looking to make a profit. What emerges, therefore, are two groups. The first group are those Lideners, those are the Puritans who are coming over, and the second group is known simply as the Strangers. Despite the mixing of the Strangers with those from Leiden, you still end up with a colony that was going to be completely controlled by the Puritan faction. By the time they had gotten onto the Mayflower, both groups had lost significant numbers of their members following the Speedwell being unable to make the journey. However, of the group that did make it, just over half the members on the boat were part of the Leiden congregation, with the remainder being made up of the Strangers. Majority aside, however, the Puritans had another huge advantage over the Strangers. While it is, in fact, easy to view it as two parties, the Leideners and the Strangers, that's not technically correct. The Leideners were, in fact, a unified bloc. They were all going to fall in line with the accepted position of the group. On the other hand, the Strangers were not a unified group. Rather, that designation simply meant that they were not members of the Leiden Congregation. The situation meant that, for all intents and purposes, the Leideners were going to have hegemony over the leadership of the Plymouth colony. The Mayflower Compact did serve the end of establishing that there were two groups and they were going to need to work together in order to not die. However, the Leideners simply had the numbers and the cohesiveness to ensure that the government was going to be theirs. Now, of course, the Pilgrims were not alone upon arrival to Plymouth. As Sam has already detailed, they had encounters with the local Native Americans right from the get-go. This includes getting help from Squanto at the encouraging of Massasoit. Massasoit was the local chieftain of the Wampanoag tribe, one of several tribes in the area. For Massasoit, initially he was left with virtually the same question as Powhatan, the leader of the Powhatan Confederacy down in Virginia, what do you do about the English? Much like Virginia, Massasoit would have had a large enough numerical advantage that even the superior English weapons would not have been enough to turn a battle away from his favor. However, Massasoit, much like Powhatan, believed that he could use the English to his advantage. The Wampanoag tribe that Massasoit led had enemies, and the English would make a useful ally. This explains why Massasoit would work on building an alliance with the English during those first few years. A critical difference, however, both in the short and long term, is that Massasoit was not as powerful as Powhatan was. The Powhatan Confederacy was a massive and complicated confederation of tribes. Massasoit simply didn't yield that kind of power and rather was just one of numerous tribes in the area. Massasoit was constantly fighting to secure his own position. The pilgrims would quickly find themselves as pawns in a diplomatic catastrophe that would really drive home how tenuous the situation was. Beginning in late 1621, the pilgrims began receiving threats from Canicus, a chief of one of the local Indian tribes, specifically a bunch of arrows wrapped in a snakeskin. Squanto explained that this was a threat and it needed to be responded to accordingly. William Bradford, now the governor of Plymouth following the death in the springtime of John Carver, responded by sending back a snakeskin filled with gunpowder. While the Game of Threats was one thing, the Pilgrims lacked the actual ability to really form much of a response, something that they were all too painfully aware of. Well, this is still a few months before the Jamestown Massacre led by Opechancanough. everybody knew that they were in a dangerous place. The Pilgrims knew that they were going to be dependent on their alliances with local Indian tribes to ensure their own survival. Sure, they had muskets. However, they were so seriously outnumbered that besides doing some damage with those muskets, winning an actual battle was pretty unlikely. The dependence on the alliance with the local tribes made the Plymouth settlers vulnerable to manipulation by tribes wanting to gain an advantage. This manipulation would come to the forefront in 1622. 1622. The Pilgrims had been planning a trip to trade with the Massachusetts tribe sometime during the spring or summer of that year. The planning for the trip had taken place throughout the winter of 1622. Before the beginning of that trip, Hababuck, a member of the Poconocet tribe, who also spoke English, warned the Pilgrims that the Massachusetts and Narragansett had entered into an alliance to slaughter the Pilgrims on their trading mission and then come down and conquer Plymouth. The real shocker, however, came when the Pilgrims were informed by Habamuk that this entire episode was being directed by Squanto. Unsurprisingly, Squanto was indignant at the idea that he was planning to betray the Pilgrims and deny the accusations. Okay, so to summarize the problem we've got here. In one corner, you've got Habamuk and Squanto who were leveling accusations at each other, plus a trading mission with the Massachusetts that still needed to happen. The plan, therefore, was to cut their losses and take both Squanto and Habamuck along. Bradford also took this occasion to better fortify Plymouth during that trip. In April of 1622, Miles Standish, who was in charge of the colonial defense for the Pilgrims, 10 others, including Squanto and Habamuck, set out on their trading mission. Almost immediately after leaving, a bloodied-up Indian claiming to be a relative of Squanto's showed up at the gates of Plymouth. He informed the Pilgrims that an attack was imminent and the Narragansett and the Wampanoag had entered into alliance and were planning to ambush the Pilgrims. This warning thoroughly confused the Pilgrims because, hey, five minutes ago, the Wampanoag were our closest allies. Obviously concerned at this development, Bradford fired the cannon, which signaled Miles Stanish and his trading party that it was probably a good time to get back home. Okay, so what's the deal here? The Pilgrims are obviously being played by somebody, with either Squanto or Habamuk being potential conspirators. Now, suddenly, the Pilgrims have zero idea who they can trust. The decision was made to send Habamuk's wife to Massasoit to figure out what was actually going on. When she returned, Massasoit assured the Pilgrims that he didn't have any problem with them. However, he had become aware of an overthrow plot being planned by Squanto. As it turns out, Squanto had been attempting to grow his own power base for a while. The plan had been to instigate a war between Massasoit and the Pilgrims with the hopes that the Pilgrims were successful in overthrowing Massasoit. Then, they would go ahead and put their good friend Squanto in charge. Okay, so obviously William Bradford was furious at this development and handed Squanto over for his punishment, right? Well, actually no. No, he did not. Bradford was not super anxious to hand over Squanto to what would have been a certain death sentence. Especially considering that Squanto spoke good English and had been helpful in the past to the Pilgrims, he was still seen as valuable to William Bradford. Massasoit, now getting annoyed, continued to demand that Squanto be handed over. Meanwhile, Squanto, for his part, just kept pointing the finger at basically anybody else who he could find. Bradford, now running low on stall tactics, was saved by two ships that appeared off in the distance. Bradford, after being alerted to these two ships, could not possibly worry about Squanto and needed to apply maximum focus to those two ships. Massasoit appears to have given up at this point and walked off in frustration, at least for the time being. Those two ships? Well, as it turns out, those were the Charity and the Swan. These two ships came not with settlers for Plymouth, but rather for an entirely new company settling up in the Wessagusset area, near where modern-day Boston is today. This new company had arrived and immediately plunged themselves into danger of starving to death during the rough northeast winters. The men also brought information about a massacre that had taken place in Jamestown earlier that spring, led by Opechancanough. Considering that the Pilgrims had just gone through this entire confusing episode with Squanto, it made sense that the Pilgrims probably wanted to work with the West Augustic colonists in the common interest of not dying. This puts Bradford in an uncomfortable position of needing to help keep the future West Augusta settlers alive for that winter. Around November of 1622, Massasoit decided to let bygones be bygones and invited the English for a trading trip. Being the cool and forgiving guy that he was, even Squanto got to come along. With everybody happy once more, colonists from Plymouth, the Swan and Squanto went out on this trading mission. All went really well right up to the very end when everybody was getting ready to return home to Plymouth. Right around that time, Squanto suddenly and very unexpectedly became violently ill. Within days, Squanto was dead. In his writings, Bradford seemed pretty convinced that Squanto had just gotten sick and died of totally natural causes. However, it does seem to be a bit of a coincidence that following the events of the past year, Squanto, a man who had a lot of enemies, just suddenly died. Either way, Squanto is dead, and the Pilgrims still found themselves in a dangerous world, now without the man who had seemingly been their biggest friend amongst the local Indian tribes. Even following the death of Squanto, however, the political situation on the ground did not become any more clear or calm. Rather, the opposite is going to remain true, and once again we are going to see the Pilgrims continue to be pawns. Going back to our subject of just a moment ago, The charity and the swan arrive and bring a brand new company of settlers that is going to go and colonize the West Augusta area. Now, to be clear, these colonists were not going to be friends with the pilgrims. They were there to make money and not seek the religious refuge that the pilgrims were. And beyond that, if for no other reason, it meant new competition in a region which was surely going to cut into the bottom line in Plymouth. However, with news of the 1622 attack, both parties were forced into an uneasy alliance. While the two groups may have been very different from one another, there was still the simple fact that there was a huge population difference in the colony. An alliance between West Augustine and Plymouth would somewhat help alleviate that problem should the common defense become necessary. The common defense did fly to the forefront during the spring of 1623 when the colonists learned of a large-scale plan by the Massachusetts tribe to attack both West Augustine and Plymouth. Now, obviously, with everything we have seen, the groups were concerned about the threats. Making this threat even more credible, however, is the fact that it did not flow through an intermediary. Rather, it came directly from Massasoit himself. Almost immediately, a Massachusetts warrior by the name of Woodowomit became the biggest threat to the English in New England. The problem for William Bradford, however, is that neither the Massachusetts nor Woodowomit had ever actually done anything to them or made any kind of aggressive overtures. All of the information here was coming courtesy of Massasoit. Beyond the warning, it was well known that the Massachusetts tribe were not big fans of the English incursion. Yet, despite not wanting more immigration from England, the tribe had never done anything more than openly complain. However, with the 1622 Jamestown ambush in the back of everybody's mind and Massasoit being relatively trusted, Bradford's options were relatively limited here. The job of dealing with the threat fell to Miles Standish. Standish was brought along to Plymouth for the sole purpose of defending the colony. There was no evidence to suggest that he was anything more than a mercenary. Standish, by all accounts, was anxious for a fight, and this provided him with just such an opportunity to try out his leadership skills in battle. Standish, therefore, gathered up a small force and moved towards Wessagusset, where the encounter was going to take place. What immediately would ensue was a whole lot of nothing. Upon initial contact, both sides just maneuver around each other, trying to feel the other side out. Standish was trying to get a feel for what a was going to do, and what a was trying to do the exact same, and was attempting to save face. Standish, however, decided against a straight ambush, and instead decided on the surface at least, to take the diplomatic approach. Rather than attacking, however, Standish invited Widowamut as well as a handful of other members of the Massachusetts tribe to come to a feast of corn and pork, likely under the auspices of trying to work out some kind of a deal that didn't include everybody killing everybody else. Widowamut, for his part, accepted the invitation. Though Widowamut would have almost certainly had the greater numbers going into battle, he likely wasn't super anxious to see the firepower that the English had. While actual numbers of Wuduwamut's forces appear lost to history, the Pilgrims and Wessagusset colonists numbered in the hundreds total, with a much smaller number doing the actual fighting, lest anybody think that this was some kind of large-scale engagement. The feast was held inside one of the homes of Wessagusset and included both Widowamit and Pegasoit, another one of the major warriors for that tribe. There were also a handful of other representatives of the tribe made up of both men and women. For the English, you had Miles Standish, three additional men from Plymouth and Wessagusset, and finally Habamuck. Now, as you may have already figured out from my comments above, while this feast was being given under the auspices of peace, Miles Standish was not at all interested in a peaceful outcome. Shortly after the feast began, Standish gave a signal and the English moved to seal the room. In a bold move, Standish jumped up, disarmed Pekasoit, and stabbed him to death with his own knife. Likely stunned by the chaos and the suddenness of the events, Woodowomot was too slow to stop the ambush from the other English in the room as they quickly sprang on him and killed him. By the end of the attack, all the male Indians lay dead and the women were captured, though William Bradford would later end up freeing them. Miles Standish, fresh off his victory, marched triumphantly back to Plymouth with the head of Woodowomot on a spike. The attack at Wessagusset was a relatively limited engagement. It was unquestionably smaller in scope than the counterattack in Jamestown following the 1622 Massacre, which, much like the massacre at Wessagusset, took place during a supposed peace negotiation, however, resulted in the death of nearly 250 members of the Powhatan Confederacy. However, though the scope was more limited, the outcomes and the effects of the attack were absolutely profound. Following the events at Wessagusset, the entire landscape in New England changed. Suddenly, the colony found itself far more isolated than it was before the attack. First, it forced the English into a closer relationship with Massasoit. Nobody trusted the English after Wesley fearing another massacre. While the Massachusetts tribe did not strike back, they did retreat into the woods, which gave the English an extra-wide berth in New England. Other tribes in the region took notice, and having no interest in fighting the English, did the exact same thing. The English couldn't afford to be completely isolated from native populations, and were therefore driven even closer to Massasoit and the Wampanoag, who are now the only tribe interested in doing much of anything with Plymouth. For Massasoit, this entire episode was a huge boon. The attack on Wessagusset had cleared out his enemies, sending them retreating into the woods. Beyond that, though, it gave him a degree of control over the English, as he realized that he could exploit the degree of their mutual dependence. In fact, for Massasoit, all of this was really a win-win situation. Over the past year, he had the good fortune that came along with Squanto's untimely death, thus eliminating the guy who was looking at his job. Then the English, through their good work, were able to defeat one of Massasoit's main enemies. Finally, the fallout from the attack was enough that the other tribes that could challenge Massasoit found themselves retreating further inland, increasing the power and the land holdings that Massasoit had. This is to say nothing of the fact that the Plymouth settlers now had far fewer people willing to trade with them, giving Massasoit a near monopoly. So now, if you are sitting there and listening and thinking that this all seems too good to be true for Massasoit, then you're probably right. Recall that it was Massasoit himself that had given the Plymouth colonists the warning in the first place. He was the one who set the entire chain of events into action. It seems to be a pretty safe bet that Massasoit had indeed manipulated the Plymouth colonists into doing his dirty work. The attack on Wessagusset would usher in a long period of peace between the local tribes and the Pilgrims. During the mid-1630s, there was the Pequot War, though that was fought largely between Massachusetts and Connecticut, and most of the tribes we have been talking about today remained on the sidelines. For Plymouth, there would be a long-term peace with the Wampanoag people. Indeed, it was not until 1675 when Massasoit's son Metacom better known to history as King Philip, engaged and fought a bloody war with the English, one that would lead to the near collapse of New England. However, that is a story for another day. It is also worth mentioning that upon learning of the events that had taken place in West the company back in London was absolutely horrified. The pastor John Robinson, who, despite not making the trip across the Atlantic himself, remained one of the most influential members of that Leiden congregation that made up the pilgrims, was not happy either when he learned the news of the attack on Wessagusset. He wrote to William Bradford regarding his serious concern over what he had heard about. Robinson doesn't really mince words either. He very directly calls the Pilgrims out for what they had done and expressed deep reservations about the complete lack of provocation by the Massachusetts people prior to the attack. However, Robinson wasn't just writing to Bradford to let him know that he was disappointed in their actions. Robinson also included a warning to Bradford specifically regarding Miles Standish. Standish, as we discussed a few moments ago, wasn't religiously aligned with the Pilgrims. That being said, Standish wasn't exactly a member of the Strangers either. Standish was brought along for the sole purpose of helping to defend the colony. In other words, the guy is pretty much just a mercenary. This isn't the first time that there had been complaints about Standish either. Several of the members of the Mayflower had complained about the guy previously. For Robinson, he had real concerns over somebody who was not aligned with the Puritans religiously, having so much power and influence over the day-to-day actions of the colony. Not to mention that everybody who really got to know Miles Standish found him to be something of a snooty jerk. For William Bradford, however, he really had very little choice in the matter. Well, I think it is fair to say that the guy probably didn't share the hawkish attitude of Standish, the fact remains that he was in an unfamiliar land and with rough living conditions, he was thrown into the middle of a already very complex tribal relationship. Well, the popular view is to see the pilgrims as being the only chess piece on the board during the early 1620s in New England, the fact is that they are now one of numerous pieces on that board with a lot of different factions trying to control them. Plus, Let's not forget about the 1622 massacre in Jamestown, which would have only served to reinforce to Bradford the realities of the situation that he was in. While Robinson certainly held a very powerful position amongst the group, the more pragmatic reality is that he was not in the colony, and he did not have to deal with the very real hardships that men like William Bradford did. In this way, there is a good argument to be made that William Bradford was not just a totally oblivious rube being taken advantage of and manipulated by everybody. That view is to ignore the realities on the ground and the real difficulties that came along with trying to start a new colony. However, regardless of the reasons why and the degree to which Bradford may have been manipulated, the outcome is the same. By the end of 1623, Bradford and the Pilgrims had tied themselves to Massasoit. And what are those colonists who landed in Wessagusset? What became of them? Well, if you are curious what happened to the passengers of the Charity and the Swan following the Wessagusset incident, here's what happened. Even before the massacre, life in Wessagusset had been particularly awful. Following the attacks on the Massachusetts tribe in that colony, the entire thing basically collapses. A handful of the remaining colonists would end up going back home to England though the vast majority joined English fishing vessels in the region. It wouldn't be until the Great Period of Migration during the 1630s that there would be much in the way of competition for Plymouth. While there are certainly long-term negative effects for the colony in regards to trade and diplomacy with the Native Americans following West Augustine, the incident did actually provide some short-term benefits. Unlike in Jamestown, where there were multiple rounds of war and peace between the Jamestown settlers and the Powhatan Confederacy during the first two decades, the West Augustine attack largely stabilized events in Plymouth. With the exception of Massasoit, nobody wanted anything to do with Plymouth anymore. The local tribes pulled back, and the strategy was one of avoidance rather than outright aggression. Well, true, this really stuck Plymouth out on an island, leaving them largely alone. It did, however, now mean that there was only a single native tribe that they really needed to pay any attention to, specifically that being Massasoit. This stability allowed the Plymouth colonists to turn their attention away from their relationship with the native peoples and instead towards internal affairs. For example, in the fall of 1623, we will see William Bradford make a move that would forever change Plymouth and largely New England. Prior to the fall of 1623, food in Plymouth was communal. Families would farm and then would give the food over to the community at large. In theory, this helped provide subsidence during those early days in the colony. Bradford, however, had decided that the colony should instead shift to an individual-level farming operation. In other words, rather than the community providing food, it would now be up to the individual family to feed themselves. And, as it turns out, this decision would have major repercussions moving forward. First, with people now tending their own personal farms, there was a much greater sense of ownership. Not to mention that the price for not tending those farms was likely death, so people had a lot of incentive to, you know farm increasingly it meant that women and children were required to work as they would help tend that family farm this increase in productivity led to an increase in the overall amount of food in the colony which meant it into rationing which is something that would have surely made everybody happy finally it meant that for the first time there was actually an excess of food this excess could be sold for profit which allows for an increasingly large artisan class to form The 1620s are a unique time for Plymouth. For that first decade, they are largely the only game in town, at least as far as Europeans go. Over the course of the decade, the only real challenger we are going to see to them is the Dutch settlement in the south in modern-day New York. However, that would remain small and for the time being, isn't going to pose much of an issue. While Plymouth is the original colony in New England, its time at the top of the hierarchy is going to be largely limited. The colony would remain small with its peak population only reaching about 7,000 prior to its dissolution in the 1690s. For that group of pilgrims, this was perfectly fine by them. After all, they had left Leiden to avoid any kind of outside corrupting influence. They were not going to be terribly concerned with the colony remaining small and in fact liked it that way. What nobody knew during the 1620s, however, is that New England was on the verge of a population explosion. During the early 1630s, nearly 80,000 Puritans are going to flee England, with about a third of them ending up in New England. This influx of people, however, wouldn't wind up in Plymouth, but rather in the new Massachusetts Bay Colony. Virtually overnight, Plymouth will go from being the only show in town to little more than a background player in a region that is going to be dominated by the influence flowing out of the new town of Boston. I want to thank you all so much for listening to me talk about the Plymouth Colony today. It really is a fascinating story that few people know beyond the Mayflower. I want to give an especially big thanks to Samuel Hume for inviting me to host this episode. And I promise you all that I have thoroughly enjoyed making it. And I genuinely hope that you've enjoyed listening to it. And of course, if you would like to learn more about the development of politics in the United States, please drop by my podcast, The Political History of the United States, where I tackle just those questions.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?